Hi everybody, I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. and welcome to Prophecy Today Weekend, a Prophecy Today radio program that examines current events in the light of God's prophetic word. I, along with my brother Rick, uh, produce this program and we're carrying on the message and the vision that my father had when he used to examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this program is important, but we say that every week, don't we? Oh, we certainly do, and we are blessed, and I'm still blown away from time to time by the quality of some of the guys that we regularly have on here. They have such great insight, and we've been talking to them for many years now, and they continue to deliver. Well, we've got Kid Timmerman standing by, and Rick, we need to get going because we do have a lot of news to cover. And we do have a lot of information to get to. Ken, where do we find you today? Uh, well, I'm up in the Washington, D.C. for a couple of days on business and the family uh, reasons, Uh uh, and then back to Florida uh, for next week. Always in the heart of the action, Ken Timmerman. Well, Ken, well, let's get started real quick. And I'd like to talk about what's been in the news um, so much now uh, over the last few days. And what's coming ahead is this G20 summit. What's your take on what's going to happen with President Biden at the G20 summit? Well, I believe Biden's leadership is going to be tested once again. And his handlers are not going to be able to protect him from French President Macron, who's extremely upset with Biden personally and the United States more generally because of the surprise deal between the United States, the U.K. and Australia that scuttled the French submarine contract with them. This is a like a $60 billion submarine contract, and, and the U.S. and the U.K. jumped in there at the last minute and wooed the Australians away from this French deal. And Macron has been quite outspoken uh, and very upset with Biden about that. So Biden is going to be challenged by Macron over that, and he's going to be challenged publicly in a way that he is not going to be able to uh, hide behind. He's not going to be able to hide behind his, his handlers. He's also uh, challenged, and the NATO partners of the G20 are challenged, by a resumption of Russian cyber attacks on U.S. companies and this uh, spate of expulsions of diplomats by NATO and by Russia over the past two months. There have been dozens of expulsions in Brussels, and then the Russians have retaliated in Moscow uh, of diplomats accused of spying. Uh, NATO recently, for example, uh, determined that a huge explosion in Prague, the Czech Republic, that took place years ago, seven years ago, they'd recently concluded that it was actually carried out by or fomented by Russian intelligence. And as a result of that, they expelled uh, about uh, 14 Russian diplomats uh, from Brussels and also from the Czech Republic. So this is something big. The the tensions with Russia are uh, actually quite important right now. There's a massing of Russian troops still in Ukraine on the Russian side of that border. And the Russians continue to threaten the Baltic states, uh, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. So that is a crisis that is brewing underneath the surface. And then outside of that, there's the whole issue of Turkey. And, and Turkey is once again rattling sabers, uh, threatening to expel Western diplomats uh, just recently. And as we've mentioned on this show, Turkey has been uh, siding with Russia and moving towards Russia, buying S-400 missiles, and now uh, threatening to buy Russian fighter jets as well. So this is a a big agenda for a president who is not all there. 
Yeah, that was my follow-up question. If you were to take a look at that, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts going on. And uh, as many of you know, we haven't seen a whole lot of the president, and he seems to have been kept under wraps and uh, by his handlers. Is, does he have the capacity to handle these types of negotiations and this kind of tightrope walk that he's going to have to do? Well, the, the short answer to that, Rick, is no. And, and we saw that quite directly during a, that recent town hall uh, with CNN uh, that Biden did. Uh, at one point, he kind of turns around and, 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 and he shakes his head and says, what am I doing here? You know, just lost. And a, an old man, an aging old man, lost and befuddled. That is not the leader of the free world. And I'm a little bit concerned, I must say, uh, to see Biden out there front and center at this summit in Rome. Uh, the other leaders in Western Europe and even of Brazil who are going to be there are not going to be quite so tender, gentle, and forgiving as Democrat partisans in this country are towards Biden. Well, another issue that he's going to have to deal with and that we've been keeping an eye on is Iran. And it looks like even though they are under, uh, still basically under harsh U.S. sanctions, it looks like China is stepping in to prop them up. Well, that's right. And this has been going on for some time, but it's intensifying. And the United States is not saying a word about it. Remember, we've mentioned on this show that China signed a 25-year deal with Iran last year that would bring $400 billion of Chinese investment in Iran's oil and gas industries primarily. Uh, and it will also give the Iranian, the, the Chinese, excuse me, military bases in Iran. This is something that makes many Iranians very, very upset. On the other side, the Chinese are helping Iran to uh, launder its oil, to sell its oil despite international sanctions. So they're giving them a back door into the world economy, which the United States, even under this current administration, has still been trying to keep closed. Uh, China sees Iran as a strategic partner. They see them as a strategic partner uh, to open up the Persian Gulf to Chinese warships and to Chinese economic interest as part of this, uh, this famous Belt and Road Initiative that the Chinese have to uh, create new trade routes to, uh, for Chinese products reaching into the heart of Europe. So Iran is a strategic element of that, a strategic partner of that, and the United States has not said a single word about it since Joe Biden uh, assumed the presidency in January. It certainly does seem like we are allowing China to gain a much stronger foothold there. Yes, absolutely right. And, and that is something I think that will have far-reaching consequences for the United States. We are essentially being pushed out of the Persian Gulf and of the entire Southwest uh, Asia region by, and, and being replaced by both China and Russia. Ken, another world event that I'd love to get your take on is the coup in Sudan. And we, that came to fruition this week, and that's been in the news. What's going on there? Well, this is a, a, a bit of a confusing situation, Rick. You've had a, a military-civilian uh, alliance since the overthrow of the dictator Bashir uh, three years ago. And now the leader of the military side of that alliance, General uh, Burhan, has essentially fired and briefly jailed the civilian members of that coalition government. So he has reinstalled a military dictatorship. He's calling it temporary. He says he continues to be dedicated and committed to a transfer or a transition back to civilian rule 
but there's no sign of that happening anytime soon. Now, the, the ostensible reason for him assuming full power is that the civilian members of this coalition were just completely fractured. They were uh, factionalized. There are 80 political parties in Sudan. They couldn't get anything together. The country was falling apart. There were protests and riots in various cities, and the generals thought that they had to reassert uh, law and order, basically, is what it comes down to. But uh, we haven't seen the end of this yet. Uh, the United States has not recognized the military coup. They're calling it a coup. And the State Department has threatened to suspend all $700 million of U.S. aid, which has not yet been spent there uh, for this year. So the U.S. could get engaged as well to put pressure on the generals to return uh, the country to joint civil military rule. Um, and then, of course, the Chinese are very worried about their investments in Sudan and the safety of Chinese workers. There are thousands and thousands of Chinese oil workers, railroad workers in Sudan, and uh, they're basically been assigned to quarters uh, until things sort out, until the protests die down and to the military can restore order. Very interesting. As you mentioned, China there, they, they have quite the presence in all of the Middle East now, don't they? Uh, they do. And, and they see Sudan as an integral part of, again, this Belt and Road Initiative. This time it's the southern belt coming up through the Red Sea into the Mediterranean. Uh, and, and Sudan controls a, a good portion of that coastline. So they want to keep Sudan stable. They would like a stable government in Sudan. And right now, it is just resolving into chaos and potentially another civil war, which could be deadly for Chinese interests. Well, final question, Ken. And uh, I want to revisit the Afghanistan crisis and what's taking place there with the Taliban. And I know that's kind of yesterday's news and we've moved on. But it seems like a humanitarian crisis is developing there that uh, the Red Cross is saying cannot be stopped. Well, this is one of those duh moments, I'm sorry, in foreign policy. Gee, the, the Taliban takes over. Uh, Western countries and Western diplomats flee Afghanistan. And uh, you think that's not going to have an impact on, on uh, the, the domestic stability, on the ability to feed uh, uh, people? All the Western food programs have been suspended. All the NGOs have left. The United Nations has even, uh, you know, stopped its food programs. Now they're talking about just providing cash directly to the Taliban. Well, that's just great. I can imagine that's going to wind up in Swiss bank accounts pretty quickly. So you've got a country of 39 million people, and uh, according to the U.N., something like 30% of them are facing severe malnutrition. Uh, that's r just enormous. We have not heard the end of the humanitarian crisis in mm. Afghanistan. It's not just Westerners trapped there, but it's also a humanitarian crisis for the Afghan people. Well, Ken, you deliver excellent information in an easy-to-understand format. We thank you so much, and uh, we will talk to you again next week. Thanks so much, Rick. It's always a pleasure to be with you. God bless. Ken Timmerman, our broadcast partner that takes a look at geopolitical events as they're happening around the world. And, Rick, you know, as we take a look at this, uh, we understand that the nations that we're examining, that uh, as we examine those current events in those nations, those are all nations that are listed in Bible prophecy. That's why we keep our eyes on them. That's why we're focusing on the events that are taking place. And they're really setting up future prophetic events that are going to take place after the rapture of the church. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, 
Dave Dolan's coming to the microphone. Rick will ask Dave some very important questions about what's going on in the nation of Israel today. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. And we're back right here on Prophecy Today with our Middle East news update with our good friend and longtime broadcast partner, Dave Dolan. Dave Dolan is with us this week. Dave, how are you doing today? Well, Rick, I, I lost my brother early in the week, as you know, to um, COVID, one of my brothers, and uh, grieving over that, but, um, you know, rejoicing in the Lord and the fact that we have hope and, uh, and such a wonderful Savior. So that's the, that's the light in these, uh, these kind of dark days, and you know all about that, uh, having lost uh, Jimmy, your father, but uh, God is good, and we're trusting in Him. Our prayers here at Prophecy Today and from the DeYoung family certainly go out to you and uh, your family and your extended family. Um, yes, it is true, and that's, uh, we do have hope. You're part of the Extended Prophecy Today family as well, so I'm sure that there's many longtime listeners out there that uh, you're, you're in their thoughts and prayers as well. Thank you. Getting on with the Middle East News update, and we'll get started here. Uh, we look at... Probably the biggest news coming out of the week is the condemnation of what the so-called settlement plans are in Israel. Uh, what's your take on that situation, and what does that mean for Israel? Well, yeah, Rick, we had both uh, Russia and the leading countries of the European Union, that includes Germany, the U.K., Spain, France, Sweden, others, condemning Israel's announcement uh, several weeks ago that it would be building some more homes in Judea and Samaria in several communities there. 
Now, the truth is this doesn't amount to a hill of beans. It's about 4,000 new apartments, uh, units, not buildings, but units. So it really is a relatively minor uh, development, and uh, they have pledged not to open new communities, not to build from scratch new communities, but the natural growth in some of the existing ones, especially those around Jerusalem, uh, where, you know, families are growing and whatever, they need more more room. So that's what it amounts to. But these countries and uh, Russia strongly uh, condemn the expansion. I'm quoting from the statement I'm looking at, the settlement expansion across the occupied Palestinian territories, which violates international law and undermines efforts for the two-state solution. So that's been their position all along. The United States also uh, apparently not publicly but privately uh, said we're not happy about this. We didn't know about it in advance, and it makes it more difficult to carry on with things in the region. But again, the Israelis are, you know, just building a few extra apartments for the people already living in the existing communities, and it is Judea and Samaria. You can call it the Occupied West Bank. That can be your view. West Bank was the name given to it because Jordan uh, occupied it uh, during the 1948 war and had it till 67. It was never recognized by anybody else on the earth that it was part of Jordan, but they called it our West Bank, and that name stuck. And so that's what the world calls it. But the Bible calls it Judea and Samaria. It's uh, the Jewish people's biblical heartland. It's where most of the Bible took place. <laughs> the prophecies uh, uh, were issued there, and the prophets went over the land, and, of course, Jesus as well. So it's just your view, but uh, not a new thing from the European Union. But, of course, the Israelis would be happier without that. And, by the way, it came after on Monday the defense minister um, declared that six Palestinian non-governmental organizations have been caught uh, engaged in terrorist activities. He didn't give any details of that, but that also created a fear from the EU and others condemning that move. But uh, Israel undoubtedly has some reasons for making that declaration. Some of the images portrayed by mainstream media would make it seem like these are, you know, going out and destroying Palestinian towns and creating uh, apartments at, at gunpoint. But that's not really. This is typically just the expansion of Jewish neighborhoods that are already there. And also, there's plenty of building going on in the area. There's plenty of Palestinian. It's not like there's a moratorium on both sides, right? It's just a moratorium on what they say is Jewish homes. Exactly. The The real bottom line issue, as we've discussed so many times uh, on this program and others as well, is the Jewish state existing at all. Um, they are Muslim fundamentalists, these different groups, and uh, not the European Union, of course, but I'm talking about the Palestinians for the most part are Muslims and observant Muslims, and a Jewish state just cannot exist uh, in their belief. Jews cannot rule over Muslims, as it's stated in the Quran, uh, so they're quoting that accurately. That's the bottom-line problem here, not a few thousand more apartments. Like you say, there's growth going on all over the area. And we've got to remember, why is Israel in the, quote, occupied territories? Why did they, quote, occupy them? Because they were attacked in 1967 by Egypt, by Jordan, by Iraq, by Syria. 
supported by the Soviet Union. Israel was fighting for its survival, and in the midst of that, in six short days, was a miracle. Israel ended up with three times more land than they had at the start of the war, including the entire Sinai Peninsula, which they gave back to Egypt. The Golan Heights, which, as we discussed last week, they're not going to get back to Syria. It was originally supposed to be part of Israel. And the West Bank was part of the original British mandate for the establishment of a Jewish state. The Arab state was supposed to be east of the Jordan River, where Jordan is today, and indeed that exists, and Iraq and others were created, and the Jews would be west of the river, and so they are, uh, but not because they launched a war of aggression or something in the midst of defending themselves. They pushed the Jordanians out, and uh, Israel is still there, and again, in its biblical heartland. Switching from Syria to Iran, and uh, I'd like your comment on kind of two different fronts here. There were some reports uh, of Palestinian groups being basically Iranian-backed proxies inside the state of Israel, and we, we have talked about that before, and we know a little bit about that. Can you talk to me about that and what, uh, what Iran's goal is and what they're trying to do to Israel? Yeah, this hit the news because a, a senior Iranian military leader, General uh, al-Rashid, uh, he commands in central Iran, a part of their military forces there, he made a statement that we have six armies that are operating outside of Iran. Now, he didn't name those six, quote, armies, but uh, he was apparently referring to Hamas in the Gaza Strip, uh, the Islamic Jihad group there, both which, as you said, we've been talking about for some years, the backing they've been getting since uh, about 2005 or 2006. Um, ten uh, loads of weaponry have been smuggled into them uh, by sea. Uh, many other drones have been sent and uh, RPGs and on and on. And then, of course, Hezbollah in Lebanon, their major proxy force, uh, over 100,000 fighters maybe, as we discussed last week. The Houthi rebels in Yemen, but they're not right on Israel's border, and they pose more of a threat because they're being heavily armed with the same drones that could travel the few hundred miles to the south of Israel from um, the Arabian Peninsula. And uh, then militias in Iraq and in Syria that are controlled by them. And, of course, this has been Iran's strategy for years, surround Israel with pro-Iranian forces, forces they've either set up or are heavily arming and funding. And um, Israel, on its own part, though, has relations with Azerbaijan, north of Iran, have close relations militarily and otherwise that the Iranians are angry about. Of course, the Abraham Accords uh, brought both the UAE and Bahrain right across the Persian Gulf into a uh, Western axis, as it were, an alliance with Israel against Iran. The Saudis haven't formally joined that, but we all know that's how they feel, too. They fear Iran a lot more than Israel. Sudan was uh, part of that, but there was a military coup there last Monday, and it looks like the anti-Israel Muslim forces are going to come out on top there, so that part of the Abraham Accords may actually be overturned. But in terms of Iran, they have these forces all around, and Israel knows that if there is a major war with Iran, as is likely, and we've discussed they're increasing their funding to possibly attack their nuclear program, Israel is. 
that um, these other forces will all get involved and Israel will have at least a three-front war. And they're most concerned, Rick, about the uh, very expansive Iranian drone program. They're creating all sorts of drones. They're stationing them all over the region. And, of course, they fly low. They come in suddenly, and they can do tremendous amounts of damage before you even know they're there. Of course, Israel has a major drone force as well, but they're not the aggressors here. Israel and Iran have never fought a war before. It was Iran that said, we don't want you in the Middle East, and we're going to fund all these groups and set them up and eventually destroy you. So that's... uh, just another facet of what Israel's dealing with, but um, God is bringing back the Jewish people, I believe, and it's up to him to uh, guard them, and I believe he'll do that. Great way to finish off that segment. Great statement. Thank you so much for all you do to keep our listeners informed, and again, uh, our condolences and our thoughts and prayers are with you at this time with the passing of your brother. We want you to know that we remember you. Thank you, Rick, so much. God bless. We're going to take a break right here on Prophecy Today, and when we return, we'll have Winky Madad. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. And we're back right now with our Middle East news update with our good friend Winky Madad. He's the former mayor of Shiloh in Israel. He's connected with all things uh, politics and, and kind of a man on the ground. He has the ear of the general population in Israel, so he reports to us, and we appreciate that. Winky, thank you for being here. Pleasure, as always, and even a privilege. Winky, I'd like to get started, and one of the big uh, stories that came out this week is that uh, the 11 EU countries who have um, condemned Israeli West Bank settlement building, as they call it. Now, there's a lot of things that goes into that term. Um, and uh, what I would like for you to do is, first of all, talk about this EU condemnation. And I also would like your take, your unique perspective, because you essentially live in what they might call one of these settlements. I would like your take on it. But starting off, I'd like to hear your take on what uh, these EU countries have, have done in their condemnation. Well, look, uh, I think ever since about 1973, Europe has been united almost across the board in pursuing a policy that a two-state solution is the only way for peace. Now, of course, any thinking person, and that includes everybody listening to this program, once you a priori define the two-state solution as the only solution, no one looks for anything else. 
And even if the two-state solution doesn't work or has no logic or perhaps is more dangerous than anything else, and many other things that can go on, too, such as return of refugees and all sorts of issues that no one knows what really is going on, then you shut off any ability for Israel or the Arabs together to search for anything else. Consortium, uh, federation, autonomy, as Menachem Begin suggested, all sorts of things that even, and I'll be uh, liberal with a small L on this, uh, as a interim period of five to ten years so that Israel and Israelis will feel safe and secure that this two-state solution isn't going to be a substitute for the terror they have been going uh, and practicing against us for decades. So the EU sticks to this, and now, like 40 years later or so, a whole new generation of diplomats, some of whom I've met, who are in their late 20s and early 30s, don't know anything else, they can't think out of the box, and they don't want to because they get money to think two-state solution, EU condemns Israeli Jewish presence beyond the Green Line. And that's an interesting statement, and if you could go a little bit deeper into that, because they say these are illegal settlements in occupied areas. Can you tell us, I mean... The the image that comes across in mainstream media is that the Israelis are bulldozing Palestinian homes and building apartment complexes and taking lands. I mean, what can you explain exactly what is the land we're talking about? What kind of building is taking place? Just if you could paint a picture for our listeners. Well, first of all, we have to remember that up until 1948, Jews actually lived in this area before they called them settlers in Hebron, and in the Dead Sea area, even in Bethlehem there were a few Jews, in Ramallah there were a few Jews, uh, in Shemin, and other places. Uh, but, of course, there was an ethnic cleansing operation that went on, which finished during the 48 War, and no Jews were left in Judea and Samaria. Of course, those unnoticed by EU media or diplomats. We forget about that. So for 19 years, Jews couldn't live here. The Arabs continued their terror, whether it's Fidayim terror in the 50s, Hello, which was established in 1964, three years before the Six Days War, everybody who's listening. And then Israel is basically attacked by Egypt. Jordan opens up cannons on Jerusalem and, and even Tel Aviv, okay, during the first day of the war. And we come into possession of the territory. Now, technically, in international law, that's described as belligerent occupation. It doesn't mean that the occupation is belligerent. It means that as a result of war or uh, attacks, one state takes over the territory of another. He'll occupy it. And Palestine, quote-unquote, never existed. So all this appeal to international law about my presence or my friend's presence or my daughter's presence down the road in a Jewish residential area as illegal, and therefore we could be attacked by Palestinian resistance, corruption of the law, and very immoral behavior on behalf of those who do not like us. Final question, and much of this revolves around the fact that 
many are, not everybody, but some are committed to a quote-unquote two-state solution. And a two-state solution, and you've brought up, I mean, I guess we could do a whole program on this, but you've brought up things like the right of return or, you know, different um, different ideas. You're going to need two honest partners to negotiate a two-state solution. Just briefly, and I know this is a very detailed subject, but very briefly, can you tell us, I mean, is this even a possibility? Is this a reality that we should be looking into or looking at? I suggest to you and our listeners who are trying to learn more about the issue, to look at what happened in 2005. Israel completely evacuated and disengaged from the Gaza Strip, destroying 14 Jewish communities, picking out 9,000 Jews. The two-state solution, in my opinion, will allow for a more strengthened, a more powerful Arab entity that will work against the state of Israel, its citizens, and I would also not hesitate to say the Christians living here as well, who are not doing well under the Palestinian National Authority, uh, so that we have two peoples uh, or two religions of peoples living here who might be threatened by that two-state solution. I'd like to change gears a little bit, switch to a different subject, and basically an update of a conversation we had last week, Winky, talking about the consulate and how potentially opening up Reopening the consulate in Israel would um, be a de facto uh, Palestinian consulate or Palestinian affairs office, and basically uh, not recognizing the fact that uh, Jerusalem is Israel's capital. And so now we have an update this week, and a senior official in the U.S. State Department uh, said that they would not reopen this consulate without Israel's approval. Is this the case? That is the case. If I'm not mistaken, it's either Article 2 or 3 in 1963 Vienna Convention on Consular Activities, which states that a consulate or an embassy cannot be opened in any country except by agreement of the host country. You just can't walk in and set up a consulate or an embassy. It's done because there's a mutual recognition here that goes on. And what the Americans are trying to do, now that they've been forced to publicly announce that they have a legal problem, it's now there, it's their international uh, legal problem, is either force Israel or browbeat Israel or dangle things like uh, no visa requirements or other such of issues, uh, because... The one issue that sort of unites 80% or more of Israel's population is uh, Jerusalem should be united. And if you set up a consulate in Jerusalem and call it the Palestinian consulate or or the consulate for Palestinians, it means no Jews, no Israelis allowed. And if it is for Palestinians, that I think I pointed out already on this program, why not have it either in Ramallah or Bethlehem with their loads of Arabs. Why service them in Jerusalem when really, really very few can get into Jerusalem unless they want to break up Israel and say uh, parts of Jerusalem don't belong to that state, which I don't think would go down. If I'm not mistaken, I saw this week that over 30 uh, senators, if I'm not mistaken, all Republicans have 
even uh, table the legislation to deny funding if the State Department tries to set up that consulate. Well, that's an important situation to continue to monitor and for you to know about, especially as an American citizen, because we're involved in that. Finally, uh, last question, and we've talked earlier on this program with some of our other broadcast partners about the coup in Sudan. And I know Israel has been attempting to normalize relationships with the Sudan. What is that coup? How is that going to affect this process with Israel? Well, look, we're in the Middle East. There are not very many democratic nations, countries in the Middle East that regularly have elections, that have an independent judiciary, uh, a free press, uh, open culture, freedom of religion, and a few other little things that would make it easy to negotiate with this. And so Israel is doing its best. It's trying to reach out. We're even hoping that uh, setting up higher or more advanced diplomatic relations with other states with which we don't have a peace treaty with will even help them become more democratic because they realize that they're part of the world and not some sort of violent little kid in the corner of the room who keeps on attacking everybody. We'll just have to wait with Sudan because we have no influence there. In the past, they've served as ports for the transfer of Iranian arms through Hezbollah to Gaza. So it's, it's, it's a ticklish or delicate situation. We don't want to come in too hard and upset the cart, but look, it's, it's their problem more than Israel. Uh, they can only gain by making peace with Israel and becoming part of the economic growth and development of the entire area here after uh, the Abraham Accords and, and, uh, and other things that Israel has managed to do. Well, Winky, again, uh, we apologize to the listener for the... Uh, interference in the line, but Winky, your information is so good and you're 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 so concise and and you have a way of clarifying the situation for us. We thank you for doing that for our listeners, and we hope you'll continue to do that in the future. Well, I will. I thank you for the compliment. Again, I thank you for having me on the program. Goodbye to you and our listeners. On today's program, we have a brand new friend that I've made. He was recommended to me by our good friend Winky Mudad. But uh, Gedalia Bloom is in the area of Judea and Samaria. Uh, basically, I- I'm, I'm assuming, Gedalia, first of all, welcome to the program, but I'm assuming that you live in the area of what would be, uh, the world would call the West Bank, but you would term it as Judea and Samaria. I actually call it the original Bible Belt. This is where 80% of the Bible took place. This is where the most beautiful story is being written today, and that's the Jewish people returning to their their homeland, their ancestral homeland, and reviving their language, their culture, after over 2,000 years of exile. And, and really nothing like this has ever happened in the history of mankind. And so we're seeing, we're seeing with our own eyes, and we're hearing, we're seeing, we're feeling something that no one's ever experienced before in the history of the world. And so it's, it's exciting, and yes, I mean, there are people called the West Bank, but obviously that, that you know, language is important, and uh, it, it, it's meant to teach something, or it's meant to create a new narrative. So yes, as, as you say, Judea and Samaria, that, that is the proper historical name of this land, and we would like to continue to use that. Gedalia, what are you doing? Now, you sent me a website, I've looked at it, 
you have moved your family there. There are lots of folks that have moved into the area of uh, what we call, I love what you said, the original Bible Belt, Judea and Samaria. That is great. And that's the term that we use. And you are absolutely right. West Bank is a political term and words have meaning. I love that. That's what my father uh, used to say all the time to me. Jimmy, words have meaning. So Great point. But Gedalia, tell me what you're doing now and uh, the name of your website and what you and your wife have put together. Well, first of all, you, you mentioned that I moved my family here. In fact, we, we're building our family here. So okay. I just want to make that point. My children, my children look outside in the beautiful rolling hills of Benjamin and the amazing sunset. This is their normal. And this is, this is, this is why we're here. And this is actually why we're doing our work. Our work is uh, called uh, Bikurim. Anybody can go to the website, uh, B-I-K-U-R-I-M-Israel.org. And we are taking a non-political, positive uh, steps to build and to resettle the land of Israel by strengthening those people who are the lifeblood of the community. And those are the family-run small business owners who are responsible for over 70% job growth. And so while people are facing political debate, uh, whether there's you know, international government bodies like the UN, State Department, or the Arab League who are coming down on us, we are here on the ground. And we have more of an opportunity to change the facts on the ground and not be engaged in the negativity. Instead, we are focusing our efforts on making sure that these small businesses have the tools that they need to succeed and to thrive, we call it economic Zionism. This is the real, practical, and measurable way that people could get involved in reestablishing Judea and Samaria for the Jewish people. And uh, this is our work. And at the end of the day, we would like to erase any kind of green lines and any kind of political uh, discussion. We just want people to connect to the land. We want to be a light upon the nation, as they say. We want people to come here and to travel, to connect. People here are beautiful. The land is beautiful. And we're enabling people around the world, especially Christians, to connect to their faith and connect to more or less who, you know, who they are as, as people, to grow as people. And so that's why this is such an important initiative. And, and I'm not just talking about Bikurim, I'm talking about reestablishment of the Jewish people here. Mm. Because without the Jewish people here, there's no Bible, there's no Torah that's accessible. People tell me all the time when I see them, Dalia, when I come to Israel's heartland, when I come to Judea and Samaria, when I come to Shiloh, when I go to Hebron, when I go to Shem, the words that I learned as a child in my Bible are coming alive, and they're speaking to me in a way that the greatest teachers in the world, in the classrooms, wherever you are in the world, has never spoken to me before. And without this, that connection, our faith, into our history, into our heritage, it goes away. So this isn't just about the Jewish people coming back to the land. This is about giving God his space in this world, making, making his, carving out his land. And, you know, as crazy as that sounds, that some ways, I mean, you feel it here. You feel it. And that's why it's so important for Jews to connect to the land. That's why it's so important for Christians to connect to the land. And that's why it's so important for everybody to make sure that no matter who you are or what you're into, that you do whatever you can on a 
daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, to make sure that you're taking part in this most beautiful story. Let me, I mean, there's so many questions that come to my mind. Uh, when you decided as a, as with you and your wife or your family, as you're building your family, but obviously your parents had to know what, uh, I know the question that we always get is why would you move out into this area? Why uh, move your family, put your family at, at, at risk, if you will? I mean, you're in an area that uh, would be considered a risky area for most people. In fact, most Christian groups very few go out into the areas of uh, Shiloh and Hebron and, and Shem, as you said, but uh, there are many. Uh, why would you make that move to move to that area? Well, I think first and foremost, when I, I was originally born in uh, New York, I grew up in New Jersey, I experienced Israel on the first birthday trip in 2000, which is a program bringing thousands of, of young uh, Jewish adults to Israel to connect. So I I was on the first birthright program. When I first landed, I I, I, I put my feet on the, on the ground, and I felt at that point in time, the first time in my life, that I was able to breathe. Mm. And I was like a fish in water. <laughs> that I was home. And yeah. I didn't, in the first time, first time I was here, when I first experienced coming to Judea and Samaria, I said, this is the land of Israel. This is, I could go outside and put my feet on the ground, and I could reach down and pick up pottery in my front yard. Mm. I could look outside and see where, you know, I could see where, where Joseph was, was, you know, walking to go check up on his brothers mm. and was ultimately thrown into a pit and, and sold to slavery. I could look out my, my window and see this. And so when you, when you talk about the return of the Jewish people to their, to their land, there's a reason why, you know, words have meanings, as we said, return. The center of Jewish life before the exile was Judea and Samaria. It wasn't Tel Aviv. It wasn't Haifa. It wasn't Eshdod. It was Shiloh. It was Hebron. It was Jerusalem. This was the center of Jewish life. Mm -hmm. And so when I came to Israel, I said, you know what? I decided to make my life in Israel, and that didn't mean to continue the way that I would have lived in America, corporate lawyer or whatever it was. I said, you know what? I'm coming to this land, and when I connected to the land of Israel, Judea and Samaria, I said, there's an amazing opportunity here right now. There's an amazing opportunity that I am able to have influence in society that I would never be, I would never be able to have in America. You get completely swallowed up by by everybody around you. There's 500,000 Jews that live in Judea and Samaria. I have a voice. I have an ability to change and shape the future for myself and for my children and for my grandchildren. This has become a mission. This has become a mission. And I think it's really important for people that no matter where they are in the world, everybody has a purpose. Mm. Every single morning I wake up. And I go outside and I look at these, I look at the, the sunrise over the hills. 1.2 million sunrises came over these hills in the times of Joshua. <laughs> and they set up the first Jewish temple in Shiloh. The, the guy who was hanging out with Moses. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what I'm, like, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. This isn't some like, you know, these, these aren't pages in a book. These aren't words in a book. These are, these are, this is, these are stones. These are, these are trails. These are olive trees. This, this is what I'm looking at every side. And this is my purpose. And so when it comes to the perceptions of danger, of violence, 
and I say perceptions because somebody would say, I would much rather go to Chicago than go to Chilo. Right. <laughs> and meanwhile, you're much more, it's a lot more dangerous to go to Chicago because, listen, I mean, in Israel, we're, we're a very, very contested land. And there's more press per capita in Israel than there is anywhere else in the world. Mm. So there's a narrative that is perpetuated in order to get clicks, to get views. And that's the story of the Jews and the Arabs fighting with each other. If you walk on the street, and I'm not saying we're friends, I'm not saying we're, we're, we're you know, we're, we're with some issues. But overall, I walk down the street and who do I see building our Jewish homes? The Arabs. You know, I mean, this is normal life. You're- you know, there are for sure bad people, but I don't feel that this land is dangerous. Mm. Um, I'm not saying, you know, so, so I don't feel like I'm putting anybody in danger. You're trying to coexist with those around you, but you have a definite purpose and why you live there and what you're doing. Now, I know that uh, what can, what would you want uh, our listeners to, first of all, to be aware of? How can we uh, find out more. Uh, what would you want us to, uh, if you could tell, you know, uh, Christians, what, uh, give us the practical of what we can do to help out and, uh, you know, help continue the building process in Judea and Samaria. Right. So let me, let me, let me go against all the grains and all the normal talk about organizations and supporting, and this is what you could do for us. It's not about us. It is about us, but it's not only about us. We're winning, we're building, and we're growing. We're not starving. This isn't a soup kitchen. We're not mm-hmm. begging. We're not, you know, we are strong people. We're pioneers. We're coming back to this land, and we're opening it up to the world. So when, you, when, you're, when your Christian listeners are listening, it's not about what they could do for Bikulim. It's what Bikulim could do for them. Mm. It's, it's their connection their connection to what's going on today in a real and practical and measurable way. We have hundreds of people in Africa who write to us, we're part of this group, uh, you know, Africa-Israel Initiative, and they say, we have our prayer sessions all the time for Israel, and this, that, and they said to me, Gedalia, like, this is one of the first things that we actually feel like we're part of the building and reestablishment of the land of Israel. Mm. You know, and I said, great. And, and really, that's what it's about. And, and, you know, that's what it's about. And it's about, it's about attracting thousands of people. Donate $9 a month. And the name uh, Bikurim, actually, in, in English, means first fruits. The whole idea that you bring your first fruits to the priest during the temple, mm. that it doesn't even, like, belong to God. Everybody, everybody who's Christian or Jew understands that it's in our, in our heritage, is that Ten percent of what you earn is really not yours. It's it's for God. It's it's you know it's a gift to charity. It's a gift to holy purposes, and it's for everybody to decide whether or not this would be a holy purpose for them. It's, it's the open opportunity for more people to connect to this land and turn those words on their Bible, on their Torah, into real life, where the young adults and children could come here, whether they're Christians or Jews, and be inspired. And the only way to do that is for a strong, a strong Israel, a strong Jewish presence. Because we see on a larger geopolitical scale what happened when Israel became a strong military, mm-hmm. you know, you know, presence in the Middle East. But both states are now are now allies to Israel. The only reason why that happened is because we're strong. 
Mm. And that's it. So we need to look at, that's why I'm not so into the word coexistence. Mm. I'm into the more focus of power. When good people have power, it's good for the world, it's good for the community. When bad people have power, it's not good for anybody. And so we are, I believe that we are good. And when we have power, we will give everybody the rights and, and human rights that they, they, they deserve. But in order to get to this quote-unquote co- coexistence and peace, Jewish people need to have control. We need to have power. And that's a big aspect of how we're building Judean Samaria through economic Zionism, because it creates self-sustainability. Mm-hmm. It creates the ability to grow on itself, the comp- the, you know, this compounding on, on success one after the other. Excellent. Again, your website, and uh, we're speaking to Gedalia Bloom, and his website is spelled B-I-K-U-R-I-M-Israel.org. But as long as you just Google B-I-K-U-R-I-M, you will find out more about how you can be involved and help and find out more about uh, their uh, work, that their project, and, and what they're doing. Gedalia, thank you so much. Thank you for being on today. And we're going to come back later on. I hope that, uh, I, I mean, I love hearing your outlook as you look at the land of where you live, at what you're building. And we want to continue to follow up with you along the way if that's possible. Now, that'll be great. I would love that. And if any of your listeners have any questions, maybe they could send them questions to you, and then we could create some sort of open that would be great. communications. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Have a good evening, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again, Gedalia. Thank you for having me. Two broadcast partners that are in the heartland, Judea and Samaria, in the land of Israel. We're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, my father, will be teaching in his Legacy Series. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Thank you for sticking around for this last half hour. And I think it's very important, Rick, as we are doing this legacy series, as we take a look and we listen to Dad's teachings uh, that people understand Dad's eschatology and how he, the roadmap really, as he refers to it, as he looks through Bible prophecy. That's right. These topics that he's discussing now, they're foundational topics. And that's why it's so great to listen to, to rehearse and uh, remember. Um, And of course, in remembering, we also like to hear our father, the late Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, who taught on this radio program for so many years. We love to hear his voice as well. Yes, we do. And it is a great series that we've done. And uh, this was actually a series that was on another radio network, but we felt it was so important. And it really does help you to understand uh, the process of the roadmap through eschatology. And today we continue with this roadmap through eschatology as we look at the the return of Jesus Christ and the thousand-year period of time called the millennial period. Here's Dr. Jimmy DeYoung teaching us on his roadmap through eschatology. Let me take a moment to remind all of our listeners of the next events on God's calendar of activities, the prophetic timeline. The rapture of the church is next when Jesus shouts and all of us who know him as Lord and Savior will be caught up into the air. Then there will be a seven-year period of time, terrible judgment on the face of the earth, followed by the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's all found in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 19. Next, we'll take a look at Revelation chapter 20. Thank you, Jimmy. And now our Bible teacher, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. Now notice in chapter 20 what happens after the return of Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 20. 
And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and laid hold on that old dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. That's what happens after the return of Christ. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Now notice verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Look at the last part of verse 4. And they lived and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is when Satan is bound for a thousand years, but we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ during the thousand years. This is the kingdom. One of the problems in many churches today, they're talking about the kingdom now. No, the kingdom is not now. Jesus Christ is not on his throne. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. How do I know that? I read the book of Hebrews, chapters 1, 8, 10, and 12. When he got finished doing his work on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. God the Father is on the throne. If you don't believe that, there's a passage of Scripture that gives you a glimpse into the third heaven. You know where it is? Revelation chapter 4, verse 2 and following. And you go into the heavenlies in chapters 4 and 5. You see God the Father on the throne. Chapter 5, he has the title deed to the earth. Who's going to open the judgments of the sealed book? Somebody said, what about Jesus? He was pure, perfect, holy, without sin. And Jesus walks up and takes from the Father on the throne the title deed. And that's for over there. We'll get to it when he has to bring the earth under total submission and subjection and earth dwellers. Over here is where he rules and reigns. This is the kingdom period. Remember, this is the kingdom, followed by... The great white throne judgment. Look at chapter 20 and verse 11. Chapter 20 and verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven had fled away and there was found no place for them. This is the time when Jesus Christ will not decide if somebody's lost or saved. There's no judgment ever to determine whether you're lost or saved. At the judgment seat of Christ, that's for Christians. At the great white throne judgment, this is for lost people. How do they get to this judgment? By their own free will, they make a decision. This is what they want. Jesus Christ has done everything possible to give us eternal life. And if you reject it, the consequences are you stand here at the great white throne. Don't you dare let anybody ever say, God is a mean God. He would send somebody to hell. No, he only accommodates those who of their own free will made a decision. They want to go to hell. That's at the great white throne judgment. And after this, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. This is the roadmap through eschatology. Let me go back one more time now and look at a couple of things for you. I said, here's the return Seven years after the rapture. I said it's a seven-year period in between. A little bit wrong. There's several things that have to happen after the rapture of the church before the seven years begin. Let me tell you what has to happen. Ten horns have to appear. Little horn out of the ten horns must come onto the sea. That little horn is one of 27 names for the Antichrist. He must appear and confirm a peace agreement. That's three things. Ten horns would be the revived Roman Empire. Little horn, the Antichrist, and the confirmation of a peace treaty. Daniel 9, 27 says, And he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant, the peace treaty, with many, the Jewish people and their neighbors, for one week, the seven-year period of time. So the clock starts ticking 
on this seven-year period of time when the peace treaty is confirmed. We'll look at that when we come to Daniel. But there's a space between the rapture and that happening. How long? I don't know. The Bible is totally silent on it. I'm thinking it's probably going to be a short time. But what happens during that time? We are caught into heaven at the rapture of the church. And we stand in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in front of Jesus Christ. For the judgment seat of Christ. You know what that means? Every work you've done and I've done, we're judged for it. You say, works? Works? What are you talking about? We don't have to have works to be saved. I didn't say that. And by the way, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, We're saved by grace through works, not a faithless any man should boast. But verse 10 says, Created unto good works. And that's what we're going to be doing afterwards. Works. And all those works, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, which is following the dictates of 2 Corinthians 5, 10, all of us shall stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14, 10, all of us will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. We will have our works put on the balance. Some of them will be wood, hay, and stubble works. Others will be gold, silver, and precious stones works. They will be dropped in the fire. When those wood, hay, and stubbles works hit the fire, they're consumed. When the gold, silver, and precious stones works hit the fire, they're purified. The balance has come out. This balance is empty. This is balanced, is pure. These are the works, listen, we did in his power for his glory. These are the works we did in our power for our glory. How many of those have we done? And we receive reward. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. We receive a crown incorruptible because we brought our body under subjection. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 We receive a crown of rejoicing for being a soul winner. James 1.12 We receive the crown of life for not yielding to temptation. Temptation is not sin. Yielding to it. 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1-4 to We receive the crown of glory for what? Helping the body of Christ grow. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 and laid up for me, Paul says, as a crown of righteousness. And not for me only, but for all love in his appearing. You can get that this week by starting to be eager for the return of the Lord. You know what we do with those crowns? Chapter 4, verse 10 of the book of Revelation. We walk into the throne room and we lay him at his feet in thanksgiving. But also that becomes our wedding garment. May I show you a verse in Revelation 22? Revelation chapter 22. This is Jesus announcing he's coming. Notice what he says, verse 12. Chapter 22, Revelation verse 12. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according as his work shall be. Did you get that? Do you ever wonder what we're going to do after the return of Jesus Christ back to the earth? We come back with him on white horses. What are we going to do during the thousand year period of time? What are we going to do into eternity future? You ever wonder what we're going to do? Well, whatever it is, listen, it's determined by his reward that he brings. You see what it says? 
I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And where does he get that reward to give us? Here at the judgment seat of Christ. You know what then happens? We're married to Jesus Christ. Chapter 19, verses 7, 8, and 9. It says the marriage ceremonies take place. We put on our righteous acts as our wedding gown. And honey, I want to tell you something. I do not want to show up at that wedding with a miniskirt on. I want to show up with a long flowing white gown. So when I step around the corner, Jesus says, wow, look at that bride. I know he's not going to say that, but anyway. I want the kind of wedding gown he wants me to have based upon judgment seat of Christ. You know how a Jewish wedding, it says in chapter 19 and verse 9, there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. talks about a marriage ceremony, marriage supper of the Lamb. You know how a marriage in a Jewish family goes? The fathers of the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be get together. They make a decision if the couple can be engaged. They can be engaged according to the fathers. And then the father of the groom-to-be says, Son, come back to my house. I'm going to allow you. Mom and I have already decided you can build a little apartment on our house so that uh, you can have, uh, you know, rent-free, cost-free living for the first couple of years. Now, you tell that girl that you're going to marry, you tell her to go get her wedding gown ready, and when you get finished building that apartment, you can go and they'll get married. Well, he goes back, and he starts to build this apartment. By the way, he doesn't determine when the apartment is finished. If it was up to him, he'd put up a lean to and go get his bride, you know. But it's his father, and his father one day will come and say, go get your bride. And then I've seen this happen in Jerusalem. The man who is the best man walks through the city saying, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And they both go over to the bride's house. And there the rabbi is. And they have the marriage ceremony. After the marriage ceremony, the couple go into seclusion. They consummate the marriage. And the groom says, let the party begin. The marriage has been consummated. And for the next seven days, they celebrate. Do you not remember that the case? Jesus showed up, John chapter 2, on the third day of the seven-day feast. And all the wine is gone. You see, in the heavenlies, seven years we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's in the heavenlies, on the earth. All hell and damnation. All hell and damnation. Because Jesus Christ has to bring This earth under subjection. And earth dwellers under subjection. So God the Father can give him his kingdom. This is the road map. You know where we are? We're over here. Just before the rapture. You know something? Not one prophecy has to be fulfilled before the rapture. Not one prophecy. The next prophecy to be fulfilled is when we hear the shout, Come up hither! And how close are we to that? Could happen today. How then ought we be living? Father, thank you for the time.
to be able to spend with these dear friends studying the prophetic word of God. We're, we're back to basics, but basics are key because there's so much confusion out there in the church today. We must have the basics to understand what is going on. And we must base everything as we study God's word on the basic truths of what's going to happen. We've walked through the road map of end time events today. We'll continue to advance this as we look, Father, at those keys to unlocking your plan for the future. Help us to get it, to know it, to live in light of it. That precious name we pray with thanksgiving. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and his roadmap through eschatology. You know, as you look at Bible prophecy, there are ways to understand what is going to take place in the future, and it's in God's Word. We're going to come back in just a moment. Rick and I will take a look at everything that we've talked about today and see if we can help you to understand what's going to happen in the future as we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic Word. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with my brother Rick. And Rick, this is the portion of the program that for so many years, our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, would take a look at the book. He would tie all of the events as we examine them to God's prophetic word, the current events and what's happening in our world. Without really looking at and trying to sensationalize anything, we would just... He would just see how these world events are happening and go to the Word of God, correct? He would just do that, and that was so important to a lot of people over the years. 
Oh, well, that certainly is correct. And you take a look at the news stories that we covered throughout this program, and you see so many nations coming up that are, are mentioned in the end time scenario in God's Word. And as you look at these nations, you see things happening or things taking place. And so we're looking at those events and, like you said, not sensationalizing, but uh, realizing that uh, that things are taking place and it looks like prophecy is going to come to fruition sooner rather than later. It does. You know, the important thing, I think, not a lot of people, as they read the Scriptures, know how to draw the lines to connect the dots to these countries. But once you uh, use a proper study method for understanding Bible prophecy, once you take a look at it, it helps you to figure out who these nations are, who to watch, why these nations. And really, I always refer people to a phrase that we've used so many times that everyone has a worldview. It's very important to have a prophetic biblical worldview. Why the world is acting as it is today? What? Why are they doing that? Because God is using, he's setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Well, let's take a look at some of the current events that some of our broadcast partners talked to us about today. Ken Timmerman. Rick, you talked to Ken. He was in Washington, D.C. He's um, he was He's in a great position to look at geopolitical events. And he happened to... Uh, to take and examine G20 for us. He did. He took a a look at that summit, and that's definitely been in the news. And I guess what struck me about what Ken talked about is if we look at the diminishing presence of the United States, and uh, we, we talked about our administration, I'm talking about the United States administration, we're not necessarily operating at full capacity sometimes it seems like and it's allowing uh, from a geopolitical world point of view it's allowing nations like China which is mentioned in prophecy Iran mentioned in prophecy as Persia uh, several and, and and many more but these nations are becoming more and more prominent and Russia included as well Jimmy talk through our listeners why it's so important to take a look and keep an eye on what these nations are doing Well, you know, as we look at the G20 and our uh, nation, the United States of America, uh, their involvement, and as Ken told us that President Biden is going to be brought to task. You know, people used to tell me for years how important the United States was on the world scene. We don't see the United States mentioned in Bible prophecy at all until you come to Zechariah chapter 14. When the Antichrist and gathers all the nations of the world to the city of Jerusalem to wipe out the Jewish people. If the United States is still a nation after the rapture of the church and it doesn't implode, it will be there in Bible prophecy. But we're beginning to see the really the, the downturn of the importance of the United States on the world political scene. And uh, as Ken told us, Many of the European nations are going to bring President Biden to task for decisions that he's making. He's coming under a lot of fire, and uh, I think it remains to be seen, uh, really, how long the United States, the great empire of the United States, it's been a nation for 240-something years, uh, to see where it will go, uh, and if it will still be a nation should the Lord tarry in the next five or ten years. So I think that's so important as we looked at that, and you talked about the nation of uh, Iran and China, China becoming involved with Iran. You mentioned uh, Persia. Well, in Ezekiel 38, one of the nations that come against Israel in the Gog and Magog War will be 
that Persian nation that up until 1937, what was known as Persia today is known as Iran. So we're seeing major players, all the alignment of nations. When you So in, in the future, the Antichrist, one of the qualities of the Antichrist is he will establish a military power and he is going to use his base, the European Union today, which is the infrastructure for that base, as his source of power. And so he's going to have to have a military uh, might that will be involved. And here the European Union is calling for a military to step in place. And so we're starting to see all these parts and pieces come together. And that's why we focus on these nations as they're unfolding and, and uh, as they're making decisions about the future. We talked about Sudan and Sudan's involvement. Sudan is mentioned as one of those nations of Kush. That's Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan that will come against Israel. So it's, we're keeping an eye on the coup that uh, took place there. And then we're, as always, we keep our eyes on the nation of Israel. We talked to Dave Dolan, Winky Madad, and our new partner on our broadcast table, Gedalia Bloom. And you know, the thing that they all mentioned, Rick, is they mentioned the word heartland. The heartland of Israel is that place that we call Judea and Samaria. That's correct, Jimmy. And that's the, uh, that kind of is where the issue goes back to. In fact, when we're talking with Winky and we see how important uh, Iran, one of those nations that is going to come against Israel in uh, Ezekiel 38, uh, is is fighting a proxy war and looking to attack the heartland. Basically, um, and you know, we can go all the way back to Genesis. They're looking at attacking the the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the land that God gave to the Jews. This is all happening. This is all taking place, and we're studying it. And we're not doing this to sensationalize. God put the end time scenario. He put the plan in Scripture for a reason, so we would know, so we could take a look at the signs so we could see what was happening, so we could see how near and close we are to this, um, to basically the rapture of the church, the next main event on God's calendar. You know, it's so important, over one-third of God's Word, the way that He communicates with us, it contains information about future events, about Bible prophecy. If it was that important to God, how much more should it be important to us as we are studying God's Word on a daily basis? And Rick, out of the thousand prophecies that are given, 500 have been fulfilled. The events that we are looking at today on this program helps us uh, to understand that those 500 remaining prophecies in the future, they're related. But before all of that takes place, we understand and we believe that the rapture takes place before any other prophecies are to be fulfilled. That's true, Jimmy. These events should cause us to live prepared, pure, and productive lives. You're absolutely right, Rick. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.